Welcome to the Boys in Blue podcast, the podcast that's all about cops. I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. You have tuned in, undoubtedly, to the most informational law enforcement podcast out there today because we'll talk to real cops, some active, some retired, and we'll get the inside story on law enforcement. I'm your host today on the Boys in Blue podcast, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. Once again, I'm seated here in the Boys in Blue podcast studio in Mesa, Arizona. And of course, this podcast is all about cops. You know, I have a lot of very interesting officers on the podcast. And oh, we talk about some of the traumatic incidents they've been involved in, whether it's shooting and high-pursuit chases and dealing with just the role of a police officer can be pretty exciting and uh, takes its toll as well. One of the things we don't talk about a lot is the emotional impact over the long term that it has on police officers. And how do they deal with just call after call after call? And uh, that builds up, not only affects their job and their outlook, uh, on the job, but also their family life, their personal health, sleeping patterns, working night shift all the time, all those sort of things. But thank goodness we have people that are available that have taken the time and their calling is to help uh, first responders deal with the situations that they have to handle every day. And our guest today is not only a former police officer, but after he left the police department, he saw the need for helping first responders. And so he went, not only does he still work with the police department in a SWAT team as a hostage negotiator, but he's also uh, in charge of crisis intervention training. He's a drive, he was a driving coordinator teaching high-speed pursuits and all that for the new recruits and ongoing training for the officers. So today we have on the line with us a retired officer, actually, you might say, but still working, a professional licensed counselor, a trauma counselor, uh, Tom Gussie. Now, Tom has uh, went back to school. He's got two master's degrees. I mean, that'll drive you nuts right out the gate. <laughs> He's got a master of arts and professional counseling, uh, specifically in trauma. And he's also got a master's degree in educational leadership because he's a college professor as well. So we got a wealth of knowledge here with uh, our friend Tom Gussie. And Tom, I want to welcome you to the Boys in Blue podcast. Well, thank you so much for reaching out to me, Bill. I really appreciate being here this bright and fine morning. You know, and we met because, like so many officers I've met locally here, is because my wife worked for Mesa Police Department. And uh, we crossed paths a few times and chatted. And then, of course, uh, being the studs that you and me are, (laughs) 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 we ran into each other over at L.A. Fitness, pumping iron. And so we had some good conversations there. And I so appreciate uh, your role now. I want to get into your background, how you started police officers uh, in the police department and that. 
but I so appreciate your role now because you're helping guys with some of the things that I went through myself, but I had to kind of figure it out myself and it took me a while to do that. So tell me now, first of all, Tom, are you from Arizona or tell me your background there? What's your family? Where'd you grow up? Well, it's really interesting. It's because I am a native Arizonan and I was born at Williams Air Force Base. At that time, my father was a doctor or studying to be a doctor in the Air Force. And so back in 1957, so I'll just go ahead and tell my age, is uh, that's where I was born. And he was transferred throughout the state. So I've lived, uh, you know, like in Scottsdale and Chandler and Yuma. And then I would say that I grew up in Phoenix. And then when I got hired on with the Mesa Police Department, it's when I moved to Mesa. Because back then, for you to be an employee, you had to live within the city. Oh, I see. I see. Now, what drew you to law enforcement, Tom? Well, originally, I wanted to go into the military. And I wanted to be a, back then it was the F-4 Phantoms, and I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and I wanted to go over to Vietnam, and I wanted to fight over there. And when I had a physical done, they said, well, you'll never be a pilot because your eyes are bad. And all of a sudden, I said, well, because I'm an adrenaline junkie, what else is going to fit the need? And I had an uncle that was a police officer up in Idaho, and he was the chief of police. And I started looking at the law enforcement realm, and I said, you know, maybe that is something I would like to do to fill that adrenaline junkie that I am. You know, most most of us that entered into law enforcement did have some kind of mentor or family member or somebody in law enforcement already that we looked up to. And did you have much contact? What was your relationship with your, was this an uncle? Yes, it was an uncle. Uh, but unfortunately, I didn't have any contact. I bet you in my whole lifetime, I probably didn't exchange more than five words with him. It was just more or less my father would tell me, he says, well, you know, your Uncle Bill's a police officer in Boise, and he would do this and this and this. And I thought, well, that's a pretty exciting lifestyle because back in high school, and this shows you like the adrenaline junkie in me, is I, you know, I, I did some high school sports, but I got into racing motorcycles or motocross particularly. And I always liked the thrill and the excitement of that. So police work was just another one of those elements that would feed my you know, adrenaline. Sure. So you got on Mesa PD and mm-hmm. like everybody else, you started in patrol, no doubt, went through the academy. Yes. And, then. and where did your career, how long were you actually a Mesa police and talk about how you progressed from there? Okay, so what had happened was I went into the police academy in 1978. For those of you out there, class 151, you know, because <laughs> I always like to, when I run across other officers, I go, what class did you go through? Uh, I went through class 422. I go, wow. You know, so, yeah, class 151. And uh, after I graduated, I went into patrol. And after I got off probation, I was really fortunate that I got on the SWAT team as one of the youngest members. And so I, here I was, I was a patrol officer, I was a field training officer, and I was on the SWAT team. And I had done that for a little over five years. Well, I remember I started progressively, you know, not feeling the best in the world and having some problems. And make a real long story short is I woke up in ICU. It was October. And so I woke up in ICU and I go, what in the world am I doing here? And they says, well, you're uh, insulin dependent diabetic. And at that time I go, well, big deal. I'm an insulin dependent diabetic. You know, it's not going to stop my life. 
Well, it's because I was a brittle diabetic. I was in the hospital from October all the way up to that following February because I had I was a diabetic undiagnosed for so long, and I had all these major side effects that I was dealing with with my diabetes. So for almost like the next year, I was having to deal with getting myself regulated and trying to figure out my insulin dosages and how many injections I was taking throughout the day and constantly testing my blood sugar levels and uh, you know, my sleep was off because of all these side effects. So I had a lot of major problems with my diabetes that took me off the streets. Wow. So you were actually in the hospital all that time? Yeah, I was. Uh, matter of oh, fact, I, I'll be totally honest with this because a lot of my uh, clients really find this fascinating. Because of all of the stuff I was going through at the time, I spent two weeks in a psych ward. And I tell you, you know, being a police officer and hearing those doors close behind you and then they would lock behind you. Um, I remember the nurse. Gosh, I wish I knew who she was today because I would love to thank her because, you know, us cops, how we always follow everybody else's rules and everything. I was so rebellious when I was in that psych ward. She came up to me. She goes, honey, you need to do what the doctor tells you to do or you could be in here for over a month. And so I thought I better get with the program. <laughs> so I started becoming more compliant, doing what the doctor said. And I was on the medications because, you know, one of the side effects is something they call peripheral neuropathy. And I did not know this had happened, but I was on Demerol injections because the pain is so intense. And I still live with this peripheral neuropathy for my diabetics out there. And I mean, you know, it, it burns constantly. And so if it gets to that point where it's really, really bad, I'll have to end up taking a bunch of aspirins and this way it helps just alleviate the pain a little bit. But what, what I was trying to get to is they had me on these Demerol injections every four hours. I didn't know I got addicted to Demerol, not knowing this. So they just sent me home and here I am addicted to Demerol plus having all these other things. And that was some of the contributing factors why I was in the psych ward is because I was withdrawing off of the Demerol plus having to deal with all this stuff with the diabetes. Hmm. Well, it's, it's kind of uh, interesting, and looking back, it's kind of amusing in a way that you found out your best escape uh, route out of there was to comply. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, we're not going over the wall at midnight. We're just going to comply and get out of here as soon as we can. So, okay, so you get well, out there. One of the and... things... Yeah. Go ahead, Tom. No, I just say, but one of the things that was really, really good that the nurses would do is because. They had a television out by the uh, elevators. And one of the things the nurses, because I would say, can I just go out there and watch television? And they said, if you promise not to escape. <laughs> and I said, I promise, I promise. So just being able to sit out there where the elevators were at helped me out a lot for that two weeks. And wow. so, yes, it, it, it was a tough time, but it was something that was needed of everything that I was going through. Well, obviously, it came out on the other side. So that's a good thing. Yes, sir. So so now when you went, obviously you can't go back on the street as a police officer. So now True. my understanding is you went over to the civilian side of the police department and that into the evidence area. Is that it? Yeah, because what I was looking at being brittle diabetic, because I mean, even today I take up to five injections. I know some people go, why aren't you on an insulin pump? It made my, it made my diabetes worse. So I take five injections a day and we know what happens out in patrol. You can't go ahead and you can't take your injections as regularly planned and you can't eat like when you may, might need to. And so you had all these things and I had to make that really hard decision is 
okay, try to get back out on the streets as an officer and live with a lot of the ramifications, or do I just go ahead and go the civilian route with all my experience and make the best of it I can? And Mesa worked with me really, really well. So I decided to go the civilian route, and I worked in the evidence section for a while, and I became the supervisor in the evidence section. And then I had an opportunity to go into community relations, which I did for four years. And then after community relations, I got the best opportunity in my life. And I went out to training as the tactical driving coordinator. And that's what I did for the remainder of my career. So obviously, to be the driving coordinator at the training academy, you're teaching uh, young recruits how to do high speed pursuits and also a refreshing for uh, refreshment courses for existing officers. Well, tell me something about now. That was interesting. Uh, shared a little bit with me offline. We see it on the news all the time. These guys doing the pit maneuver. Now, tell me how that right. came about, Tom. Well, when I got went out to the academy, I had where. We only had like three days of driving, which Arizona Post says you're supposed to have 24 hours worth of proficiency when it comes to driving. And I was thinking, you know, because of the high car accident rate that we have, we need a lot more driving. So I remember the old driving coordinator says, Tom, when you come out here, if you come out here, because, you know, I had a test for the position. He goes, you can change this program any way that you want. So we were the first agency to implement night driving. And so we were fortunate we'd go out to Scottsdale and I wrote up a whole lesson plan on night driving using, you know, the different kinds of lights, you know, on and on and on. And then I started adding all these other things because, you know, most of the driving tracks out there, you might be able to get up. And I'm just saying because of the configuration of the tracks themselves, you might get a top speed of 50, maybe 55 if you're lucky. Well, ours, we got a pretty good track where we could get up to speeds of 70 and 80. So I would increase a lot of the stuff to where the officers, it was more true to life, what we'd be handling out on the street. Well, one of the things I would do is I would go to as many driving schools. Like I went to the Smith Driving School and I went to the BSR Driving School and anything that I could go to so I could sharpen my skills to help sharpen the skills of our officers. Well, at the BSR Driving School back in Virginia, is one of the elements that they taught was pit, the pit maneuver. And I thought, man, no one that I knew of in Arizona at the time was teaching the pit maneuver. And I go, this is something that I would like to do. So it took me three years as I did a lot of training with just my driving instructors and research and writing a policy. Uh, the staff came out and I had to put them through the pit maneuver themselves. And then, like I said, it was after a three-year time frame that they approved the pit maneuver so that I know of. We were the very first agency in the state that was doing the pit maneuver. And then I started training other agencies because they heard what we were doing. So I have trained hundreds and hundreds of officers in the pit maneuver. And, I mean, I know DPS uses it, Gilbert, Mesa, Pinell County. Um, let's see, Phoenix Airport was using it. So, you know, I don't know how many others continue to use it to this day, but yeah, that's what I brought into Arizona. Okay. Now, here's the, here's the danger of a couple old cops just chatting. There's, okay. people there's people listening right now that have no idea what a pit maneuver is. Can you briefly explain what a pit maneuver is? Okay. 
Now, I wish I had a big dry erase board and this was on video because then I could yeah, really you, you, explain it easily. This will be your this will be a test of your verbal skills. So very briefly, just give us an idea of what a pit maneuver would be. What the pit maneuver is, it's a very safe maneuver of learning to spin another car out with minimal damage. Usually if a pit maneuver is done correctly, there's no damage to either the police car or the suspect. We do have policy that says that you're only allowed to do a pit maneuver at a certain speed. And all it does is it just takes and it spins a car out and then, then we are able to contain the car and make the arrest. Because sometimes when, you know, like these wrong way drivers out on the freeway, think about, well, matter of fact, one, this is horrible. But one of my driving instructor, excellent, excellent, Brandon Mendoza. Don't know if the name rings a bell. He's sure, one of my sure. driving instructors. Yeah. He yeah. was PIT certified. He was high performance certified. This guy was an excellent, excellent driving instructor. Wrong way driver kills him out on the freeway. And I know Brandon probably thought I have to do an evasive lane change to try to get around this guy. But unfortunately, with all that expertise, you know, so here's one of those things is that's where I think the pit maneuver would be good if you could safely, because, you know, you have, you have so many things to take into consideration, but to do it safely to, you know, end a threat like that to others' lives. So the, the picture I have in my mind is you come up behind the suspect, you get off the suspect, you get off to the side a little bit and you just kind of bump his rear quarter panel and that throws him into a spin and then you can safely uh, get him up against the guardrail or into the ditch or something without hurting anybody else. Is that basically kind of the way it goes? Yeah, that's, that's very basically it. Yeah. And okay. you know, it's like with, yeah, you know, like oh. when I train our officers, it's a 10 hour training day and we do the pit maneuver at all different speeds and we show them how to do them in intersections on straightaways and curves. So the officers are very well-trained on speeds and everything else and how to perform. And so like you said, you are correct. It's just taking the front of your vehicle, either the right or left-hand side, coming up to the left rear quarter panel of the vehicle, the target vehicle, and then putting a slight steering input into your car that pushes the rear end out 20 degrees. After 20 degrees, it's really not recoverable of the suspect vehicle, and it just takes the car and flips it around. I see. Okay. So now after the training, uh, driver training, you're also involved in uh, crisis intervention training, hostage negotiation. Right. Tell me a little bit about yes. that. How did you get into that from you went to evidence to driving uh, coordinator? And then how did you get into all this other stuff? Well, I happen to be on our cultural diversity, cultural awareness team, you know, Police departments have different names for that. So I happen to be the co-chair with Manny Verdugo. And we were always looking uh, at the different, uh, you know, races that were out there. You know, how do we understand all these different, you know, the cultures that are out there and the communities and how do we train our officers on these different communities? And all of a sudden I said, you know, there is two that we really don't look at, and that's the mental health. And we also look at, you know, and there's a lot of different names for this, but they call it cognitive disabilities. And I said, we aren't really training our officers at that time on how to deal with the mentally ill or those with cognitive disabilities. So we got together with the Department of Division. Uh, oh, my gosh. Wouldn't you believe it? I just slipped my, my, my mind. Department of Developmental Disabilities. And I, 
we started writing up a lesson plan on this. And then we started training our officers on how to deal with developmental disabilities. And then it just expanded into the CIT program, and which is crisis intervention training. And that comes out of Memphis, Tennessee, where Sam Cochran is the originator of that. So I went back to a bunch of those classes, came back out here to Arizona, and then I started teaching our officers on how to handle those that live with a mental illness. And then from my experience in law enforcement, I saw a lot of the stuff that our officers deal with, and that's what got me really started in the way of behavioral health. I see. Yeah. Um, and, boy, I tell you, uh, the officers really do need uh, some of that to, to bring them down from one call after another. And, you know, a lot of times we just, and you know this from experience, uh, on the street, you just go, okay, you, you handle this call. Well, now half hour later, you're going to another one, you know, <laughs> right. Never, right. never get a chance to do all that. So talk to me a little bit about this hostage negotiation stuff. Now, is that all related to the crisis intervention training? Well, yes, because what happens, I, myself, and there was a Phoenix officer, and the two of us for 12 years would do four CIT, crisis intervention training classes a year. Each class is a week long. First four days is training, and we would have a lot of experts that would come in from the community, and we did have people that lived with a mental illness that would come in and talk about what it's like to live with this mental illness and the medications that are involved and the thought processes and everything else. And then on Friday was all field problems where the officers were able to take what they had learned throughout the week. Now, I had a lot of times where I'd have officers call me out or, I mean, they would contact me. I didn't have officers come to my house and say, hey, Tom, here's what I'm dealing with, you know, I dealt with earlier. How can I deal, you know, do better with this? And so with the CIT program, we gave the officers all these skills and we gave them resources of what to use when they came across a person in crisis. Because, you know, crisis can be defined many different ways for many different people. Like, you know, you and I, we go out and ball and we, we might be taking care of a 961 or, you know, for those that aren't caught minded, a car accident with no injuries. And we go, okay, car accident, no injuries, no big deal. Or somebody else could go out there not as an officer, but, you know, be involved in a car accident with no injuries, and it could be so traumatic to them. So we taught the officers how to de-escalate people, how to work with them, understand where they're coming from, and then to help them through whatever they're dealing with. So the CIT program turned out really, really good. And, I mean, it, it expanded throughout Arizona like wildfire. You know, I heard the uh, former FBI uh, hostage negotiator. I forgot his name. slips my mind right now. He started a, after he retired from the FBI, he started a private company with uh, negotiating contracts. <laughs> right. He parlayed, he parlayed the skills of hostage negotiation into uh, contract negotiations for businesses. <laughs> right. It was pretty, right. pretty fascinating how you get people on your side and get them uh, wanting to do uh, end up making having them make the suggestions that you had just kind of uh, suggested to begin with. So anyway, did you have any, uh, is there any specific calls that you'd want to maybe highlight a little bit, Tom, that you're involved in with either on the street or hostage or negotiation or on the SWAT team itself? I know you were right out there. I mean, you were a tactical guy with the rifle and the whole gig, but 
So, do you have any specific uh, situations that you'd want to share? The lessons to be well, learned you know, from got, those. Yeah, there's some really neat kind of stuff that has taken place, both as a tactical guy, because I have to say I was very blessed because I was tactical. I understand the mind of a tactical officer, but then being a hostage negotiator, I know how we think too. So it's kind of funny is when I go to uh, negotiator conferences and they go, was anybody here a tech guy? I mean, out of hundreds of negotiators, I'm not kidding. Matter of fact, the last one I was just at, I was the only guy that raised his hand. It was a tech guy out of about 400 negotiators. And they were joking around with me because they go, well, we know how you think, you know, going on and on and on. And I usually stay quiet about that stuff. But so from a tech guy's perspective, yes, you know, we, we had our call outs and I've been given the green light because of the situation where I would have to take the person out, you know, and I've been real fortunate where I've never had to shoot anybody. Pulled my gun a lot of times. I've been on SWAT call outs where, you know, an individual has been shot. But, you know, being a hostage negotiator now, what's really interesting, because I've been a negotiator close to 12 years. And with my counseling background and licensure, because I am a fully licensed therapist, is we had one call out where we were dealing with a guy that had schizophrenia. And I had to, uh, I was a second on this one because we had the other officers primary because they had already established contact with the individual. And I had found out because I, I call up uh, MCRN, Maricopa County Crisis Response Network. And I find out, like, you know, if this guy's attached to a clinic and, you know, I'll talk to their counselor, their psychiatrist or whoever. And, you know, when they start telling me medications that they're on and stuff, I have a really deep understanding. And then plus, I'm a neuro counselor, so I study the brain all the time. Well, this guy here had schizophrenia. And so he wasn't a paranoid schizophrenic. Those are the worst. But he had schizophrenia and he was hearing voices. And so we had to be really, I had to keep telling the first, don't say, you know, are you hearing voices? I said, because, you know, we were on the loudspeaker and that's the last thing you want to do is say stuff like that, where the rest of the community go, okay, what am I dealing with? So I would say, tell the individual just to focus in on you, only listen to what you're saying. And so what I'll do is I'll take some of the signs and symptoms of these different uh, mental illnesses and I'll tell the negotiators how to address these. Where here's here's something funny for you. Uh, not the incident's funny, but the part of the story is I had an individual that was a jumper, and he was out on the 202, and he was going to jump off down into traffic. And so I was the first negotiator on scene. And as I was talking to him, I said, you know, have you ever seen a counselor and he goes, I hate counselors. Counselors really suck. They're no good. I would never talk to a counselor. And I'm standing there thinking, well, you're talking to one now. And I would, <laughs> I had to validate. Now, agreement, I'm not agreement, but acknowledgement. Here's one of the things is I will acknowledge what another person's saying. Acknowledgement does not mean agreement. Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah. like the, sun, the sun could be shining outside and he goes, it's dark out here. Okay, I acknowledge that you say it's dark. And so now the person feels like they're being validated. So here's this guy telling me how much he hates counselors and they're worthless and everything else. So I'm acknowledging his thoughts. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, I, could, I can hear what you're saying. And, you know, they probably have a lot of great reasons why you think counselors are no good. But this is what was interesting. So there's a news helicopter flying out there. 
And I had found a hook that he had a six-year-old niece he really liked. And this helicopter's flying around, and, you know, I had to tell dispatch to keep the helicopter away because, you know, the loud rotor blades kind of drowns you out. And so I said, and I'm going to make up the guy's name, and I said, okay, well, Mark, so you have your little six-year-old niece that you really love, and he's going, yeah, and so we're talking about her. And I says, what do news helicopters have on them? And he goes, well, they got cameras. And I says, do you think that maybe they're probably broadcasting this live right now? He goes, yeah, they probably are. And I said, so now picture this. Does your little niece watch television? And he goes, yeah, she does. And I said, so what happens if she happens to be on that same channel and they're breaking in with this breaking news and she sees Uncle Mark out on this overpass going to jump off and kill himself? And he goes, I never thought about that. And I said, yeah, let's start thinking about that. And from then on, I just called him Uncle Mark the whole time. And he uh, goes, I'm not, I'm not doing anything very good, am I? And I go, think of the impact that you have on your niece. And I said, uh, That's, it's really going to hurt her because, you know, how does mommy and daddy explain to her why Uncle Mark is out on this thing? He goes, I want to come down. And I said, thank you so much. So, yeah, you know, it's just being able to talk to these individuals and uh, acknowledge. Again, remember, you're not agreeing. You're just acknowledging. Sure. You know, that's like, well, that's just one of the stories. Well, I tell you what, uh, you the, just telling the story, Tom. Now, we all think, well, yeah, that makes sense. But, you know, your background, education and experience recognized what you just referred to. You used a very valuable word there, the hook. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of times an untrained person is not hasn't has the expertise that you have or the experience or the education wouldn't necessarily re, uh, understand that hook or how to uh, manipulate that to the point of calling him uncle Mark. I mean, the hook was his niece right. he loved and the, to call him uncle Mark. Well, that just, I mean, that's where your experience and education comes in immensely. I mean, if you just kind of glazed over that, but I picked up on that. Now, what have I thought of that? Right. <laughs> but now right. tell me, as you deal with officers, what do you think is the biggest issue that they may have and what tools do you give them to deal with that? Well, there's three things that everybody wants, value, acceptance, and understanding. And the same thing when it comes to officers and firefighters, because like I said, I am a trauma therapist and I do have a heavy clientele of first responders. And what they want to do a lot of times is we want to be able to tell our story and not be judged for it. And they want to be able to talk about their experiences. And that's where I'm really fortunate is coming from a law enforcement background. You know, if you think about it, I have now total combination of time of 41 years of law enforcement because I still go out and I teach and I still, well, you know, like I go to the FBI school and I help with the field problems there on Fridays. I go out to, we have a yearly uh, hostage negotiation competition between all the Arizona agencies. I'm one of the head judges there. So, you know, the officers, a lot of times is they come up and, you know, being in law enforcement, we want to be the heroes. We want to rip open our shirts. And this is just my analogy. Show the big S on our chest, help the other person. And now we're 10-8. But who helps us? And so when I have an officer come in and they start sharing the stuff, 
And, you know, I'm not saying this pridefully, but I'm going to say the majority of the time, and I'm going to talk about the 90 percentile rate, and we're talking about first responders that, are, you know, do special assignments, even the motors out there, is uh, I have well, guys, I have the guys breaking down in my office and crying. And they go, I ha- it's because I've never been able to experience a lot of these things that I'm, you know, able to talk about. Somebody's able to understand. I have some first responders will have photos of 963s and they come in and we start processing these. And so it's just that we're able to get to those things and I can validate exactly what they're, you know, dealing with, empathize with them. And so I have a, you know, I'm going to say probably 98% of the time I have a really good relationship. They call it a therapeutic relationship with our officers and dealing with their uh, trauma issues. Mm -hmm. So what are the some of the tools that you might use as far as getting them through and out the other side helping emotionally? Well, they call them different modalities. They have EMDR. Don't know if you ever heard about that. They got CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. They got CPT, cognitive processing therapy. So I got all these different modalities I can use, but just accepting them as a person validating what they're going through. And then, you know, like with officers, a lot of times we have what we call mindfulness, just being aware of yep, what's taking yep. place and what's happening. And, you know, with you and I know you're a life coach, so you know about mindfulness and things. And we have the stress levels that we talk about. And I show them that there's a stress level. And, oh, my gosh, you know, too bad that this, you're, you're, or, you know, it's sad that you're program is so short because I could go into some really deep stuff now, oh, sure. but yeah. we have what's known as the normal stress range. And this comes you know, out of a book that I got from uh, Gil Martin. And so I always promised him, cause I've spoken to him that I'd always give him credit for this, but Kevin Gil Martin has uh, his book about, you know, police officers and the stress they go through. And there's a really good chapter talking about living outside these boundaries and what we call our street survival skills. And we have what we call our emotional survival skills. And here's one of the things, and I know I, I'm guilty of this too, is every day I'm having to help you know, people and make decisions and come to conclusions. And you know, some of the stuff is really traumatic what I have to deal with. And I, I have to be, you know, I, have, I also deal with uh, special force members. And I'm just going to say that from the military. And some of the stuff that I've had to hurt what people have had to do, you know, in the military, it's really, really traumatic. And so we have, well, like I said, our street survival skills where we feel, you know, alive, alert, awake. We have a weird sense of humor. And how many times are cops told, you got a weird sense of humor? And so we live in that realm constantly. Now, when we come home, we go into our emotional survival skills. We were feeling isolated, detached. We don't want to make any decisions. And what I like to say a lot of times is here we've been making these decisions all day long. And all of a sudden, Let's say our wife calls us up or a husband calls you up and says, hey, honey, can you stop by the store and get some bread and milk? And the first thing you think about is, oh, gosh, it's one less thing I want to do. So we go to the store and we stand there and we look at the bread and we go, what am I supposed to get? I don't know. There's so many different breads. So we just go, ah, heck with it. I'll just grab one. So we just grab that. And now I know this is kind of antiquated, but this is just a point I'm trying to make. So we get up to the cash register. And the clerk asked us immediately, or the cashier says, how was your day? And we were thinking, okay, I dealt with two dead bodies. I dealt with this. I dealt with this. It's been really crappy, but we can't say, hey, guess what? And I did this as empirical research. One time, 
I took a whole week and I told people how I really felt, how crappy my day was. And it was amazing because they couldn't handle it. Yeah. So, you know, we sit there and go, yeah, it's just, it's totally fine. No problem. And so then I go, so here's the second hardest question they ask. Do you want paper or plastic? You know, and what do we usually say, Bill? I don't care. Just put it into anything. How do you want to pay for this? And you were thinking, oh, gosh, you know, now I have to figure out, do I use a debit card, a credit card, or cash? So we have to make another decision. And so we make decisions all day long. And when we come home, the last thing we want to do is what? Make another decision. And so I, it's when, when I'm dealing with marital problems, with first responders, those are some of the things I have to explain to you know the spouse is what we go through all day long. And then when it starts to make sense to the officer, what's going on again, being a neuro counselor, they start going, now I see why I'm mm. not a robot. I'm not crazy. I'm not doing yeah. dumb things. No, yeah. you're doing what 98% of other officers do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, I tell you what, Tom, you, uh, I'm so glad that you're available for the first responders because for years, I mean, when you first started, none of that was available to you, I'm sure. It wasn't no, for me. It wasn't. No, not at all. You just no. kind of went and had a beer and <laughs> yeah, told some suck it up and just yeah. yeah, go to your next call. Yeah, and I uh, I think it's wonderful that not only um, I was a police chaplain for many years and heard the same thing you did. And the reason I was very effective as a police chaplain was for the simple fact that uh, what you would hear every time and when talking to officers uh, privately was. Well, Bill, you know what it was like because you were there and, and then they'll tell you the story. And so also yeah. in your situation, uh, you can relate and they know you can relate. The uh, yeah. What I found, and you probably could found this too, uh, say, well, people just don't understand me. They don't understand. Well, you know what? Right. Sometimes officers in that don't want you to understand. But if right. they know that you've been there and done that, they know you understand and they can just like, well, yeah, you know what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> so right. so I'm, I'm glad you're out there, Tom. And so your private practice now, do you, is it, do you have your licensed professional counselor? Do you have your own company? Do you work for someone? Where would someone that's listening to this podcast thinking, you know, I need to talk to Tom maybe about some stuff. Where would they get a hold of you? Okay. I do have a private practice. And usually that's out of my house because I have some officers that like the home atmosphere. But then I mm -hmm. also work for a company called Crisis Preparation and Recovery. I'm there three days out of the week. Because, you know, you and me, we're supposed to be retired. And even my three days a week is I see clients from 7 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. And then I come home and write all those progress notes. So and that's usually mm -hmm. like three to four hours there. So I work usually Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, and I make allowances for my first responders because, you know, I know the conditions that are in, and I've had first responders uh, call me on my personal cell and go, Tom, I'm just dealing with something. I just need to talk to you for a little bit. Hey, let's do it. And, you know, being a hostage negotiator, I'm used to my phone being on 24-7 anyway. And so I'm, I'm there to help the first responder out as much as I can. But if they wanted to see me professionally, I do take EAP. Uh, I do take all, I mean, I have like 30 different insurances, and this is through the company I work for. So they okay, you know, e see that. E e and, you know, we have, go ahead, EAP. Yeah, Employee Assistance Program. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So, and I also see a lot of that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you. 
And I also see a lot of HB 2502. You know, the House bill is if you had something that happened to you at work and it's, you know, affected you, it's House Bill 2502. Because like EAP gives you anywhere from eight to 12 sessions yeah, that they pay for. Mm-hmm. And then the House Bill 2502 is up to 35. And I, like I said, I do see first responders under the House Bill 2502. And those are 35 free sessions. And then usually okay. what happens is, go ahead. Now, if someone were to Google crisis preparation and recovery, Mesa, sure. Arizona, they would they'd be able sure. to get pick up on you. Okay. Well, that's why I wanted to make sure that uh, I think what you're doing, uh, Tom, is very valuable. And you've used your experience on the street and SWAT team and that to, to help guys. Boy, that is so important. And um, I think, you know, even sometimes one of the things I found, and you can probably verify this, and I'll just say this real quick. When you're under a lot of stress, uh, sometimes you don't know it. <laughs> True. True. Sometimes you think you're perfectly normal until, True. you know, somewhere down the road you think, oh, what a jerk I was. Or, man, I can't believe I was thinking that way. Man, my head was really screwed right. on crooked. But anyway, so it's valuable just to run things by some people just so before it gets so bad that you're at the point of uh, some kind of radical uh, actions. But, Tom, listen, right. I appreciate you coming on the, the podcast. and. Once again, uh, you're doing a valuable work there. Is there anything other thing you'd like to share before we kind of conclude here today? Uh, the only thing, other thing I'll say is if your audience out there wants to come and see me, the phone number is going to be 480-804-0326. And I happen to be at extension 2136. And you said something really important just a few seconds ago. I'm also the Christian counselor. And so I do have people that are looking for somebody that's, you know, of faith, because I I have a lot of faith from these different officers. And so, you know, if you're looking for a faith-based counselor, please come on in and, you know, contact me too. And uh, we can, you know, incorporate your faith into your treatment. Perfect. Perfect. Okay, Tom. Well, listen, God bless you. Godspeed. And I'm sure I'll be Thank running you, into you. And you take care and I'll you be will. in touch with you. Okay. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank so you so much for allowing me to be on here with a privilege and an honor. You bet. We'll okay. talk to you later. Thank you, Bill. Tom. Okay. And we want to conclude our podcast there. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like the podcast, we'll share it with somebody. It's the best thing you can do. And Godspeed. Thank you for listening to the Boys in Blue podcast. Again, I'm your host, retired police officer Bill McReynolds. Boys in Blue comes out every other week. Subscribe to the Boys in Blue wherever you get your podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you think.